Hey, I'm so glad you're joining us this weekend. And uh, if I've never met you, I'm Dan, one of the pastors here. And love the fact you're tuning in. If it's your first time tuning in, love to hear from you. Love to hear that you check things out. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Uh, as Pastor Aiden was talking about this exciting vision that we're in, invite you to be a part of this. If you call Grace Church your home, a uh, great way to be involved. Next four years, going to be doing these things together, training next generation leaders, parenting our baby campuses so they can make Jesus make sense in their communities, partnering with our kingdom partners in ways that they're going to take the gospel further faster. And then we're going to do some things here, hopefully to make Jesus make sense, to invite our community in on our property. It's a four-year initiative. Love for you to be a part of it with us. Uh, just inviting you to be a part of it. Thank you for those of you who are praying and asking God to show you what part you'll play. Uh, but I shared with you last week that for me as the campus pastor here, the things the next four years as we do this together that I really hope to lead us into are a movement of prayer. We talked about this last week. If you didn't get a chance to check that out, I'd encourage you to check it out. But uh, then also, along with a movement of prayer, a culture of discipleship, I want to talk to you about that in a minute, and a mindset of investment. I want to talk to you about that next week. If you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and flip that open to Matthew chapter 28. We'll get there in a minute. Matthew chapter 28. As you're kind of going there, uh, I wonder if I could play a game with you. Uh, I'm going to play the game Simon Says. Raise your hand out there. I see you. Did I, did you ever play Simon Says? Yeah. Uh, let's try Simon Says, touch your nose, right? Simon Says, touch your ear. Simon Says, wave at Dan in the camera. Um, Simon Says, uh, put both hands in the air. All right, all right. You guys can put them down. Did you put them down? Yeah, you're out, right? If you put them down, you're out. That's the way the game goes. The whole object of Simon Says is you want to listen and hear what Simon says, and you want to pay attention to that, and you want to ignore the things that he's not saying, right? So if Simon says it, I'm doing it. If Simon doesn't say it, I'm not doing it. Seems simple, right? Uh, you're out of the game if you do something Simon didn't tell you to do. And if you don't do something Simon said, you're also out of the game, right? Now, I think uh, that it's so easy for us as followers of Christ, Church of Jesus Christ, 21st century, to listen to things Jesus never said. To assume that Jesus said things that he never said. And then, equally, it's easy to ignore things he did say. And when we do that, like Simon says, it takes us out of the game, so to speak, of effectiveness for his kingdom and his purposes. Where I want to begin today is simply this, talking about a culture of discipleship. I want to begin at the beginning. Now, you have your Bibles open to Matthew 28, but just let me read some passages up to Matthew 28. We're going to get an overview of the book of Matthew. Jesus, walking by Sea of Galilee, sees two brothers, Simon, you know him as Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They're casting a net into the sea. They're fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, the invitation of Jesus, follow me. Pastor Eden did a great job with this. And I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Following Jesus leads to becoming fishers of men. I want you to remember that. He said, if you follow me, I'm going to make you something you're not, fishers of men. There's going to be a transformation. The invitation is followed by transformation. Now I want to take you then a few chapters later, Matthew 16. Jesus came. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? We talked about this a few weeks ago. They said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, some Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. He said to them, but what about you? 
Peter answers, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. We talked about this three weeks ago, but my father who is in heaven. And then he says this, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I, Jesus, will build my church. Gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, here's what I want you to notice. The first passage we looked at, Matthew 4, Jesus says, follow me, transformation. The invitation followed by transformation. If you follow me, you'll become fishers of men. Then a little later, he says, I will build my church. Now let's go to where you have your Bibles open, Matthew 28. Right before Jesus is ready to leave, after the resurrection, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubt it. Then came Jesus to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Let's put all three of these passages together. If I'm following Jesus, I will fish for men. Fishing for men means I'm going to make disciples. Making disciples is how Jesus builds his church. And it's how he storms the enemy. That's what these passages mean. That following Jesus results in fishing for men. Fishing for men is making disciples. Making disciples is how Jesus builds his church. That's why I have a passion to see over the next four years us stir this culture of discipleship to be a church culture that makes his final command our first priority. That when he said, go make disciples, it was his final command. And I would love to see us here at Grace Church Norton make his final command our first priority. Now, culture is simply this. It's this set of values and attitudes and behaviors and language and social practices that a particular group of people share and then they pass down to the next generation. That's what the dictionary would say. Families have a culture, teams have a culture, workplaces have a culture, and the culture is formed around what the group deems important, and it's passed down to others. Peter Drucker, a uh, leadership guru, said this, culture eats strategy and vision for lunch. But here's what I want you to know. Churches have a culture, values, beliefs, practices, and those values, beliefs, and practices are easily measured not by the statements that those churches make, but by the measurable actions of the people who are the church and how well they hear and listen to the actual words Jesus said and whether or not they ignore them or not. What we do know is Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. If you follow me, you'll become fishers of men who make disciples and I'll build my church. His final command before he left earth was make disciples. I read this book uh, not that long ago, this summer actually. Uh, it's called The One Thing. It's not a Christian book. The One Thing. But in there it talks about this. This is the question, the overriding question. What is the one thing that by doing it everything else will be easier or maybe even unnecessary? Jesus said, here's the one thing. Make disciples. 
the book encourages business leaders and ministry leaders, narrow your focus, concentrate your efforts, prioritize where you put your energy. And I think what Jesus is saying is make disciples. I want you to concentrate your efforts, narrow your efforts. I want you to prioritize your energy to make disciples. Uh, author Robert Coleman says this, it all started by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Remarkable, he says, as it may seem, Jesus started to gather these men before he ever organized an evangelistic campaign or even preached a sermon in public. Isn't that interesting? Men were to be his method. I would say men and women were to be his method of winning the world to God. It starts with an invitation. Follow me. That invitation leads to a transformation. I'll make you fishers of men. That transformation explodes into multiplication. Now you go and make disciples of all nations. And Jesus said, that's how I'll build my church. Accepting the invitation that leads to transformation that all of a sudden results in multiplication, I'll build my church. Which leads Alan Hirsch, author, to say this. Church historians say this handful of guys and gals took Jesus at his word. And this movement grew to about 25,000 by the year 100 AD and multiplied to 20 million by AD 300. Fascinating. Disciples who are making disciples has always been, is, and will always be God's method for multiplying the movement of the gospel in our world. Guys, listen to me. The greatest threat to the church is not society's ideologies, political agendas, and culture wars, but churches who are not making disciples because they're either too busy or they're too bent out of shape about the wrong things. You can tell what's important to a person, can't you? Come on. By, by what makes them busy or what gets them bent out of shape, right? You Right? You can tell what's important by the things they busy themselves with or by the things that get them bent out of shape. And the same thing's true in a church. You can tell what's important to them. It's their culture by what they're busy doing. Lots of busy churches, right? Lots of active churches doesn't mean they're productive, making disciples, right? And you can also tell what's important to a church by what gets them bent out of shape. I've been a pastor almost 30 years. It's amazing to me sometimes when I look back over my time as a pastor to think of all the different things people have said we ought to do as a church. Like for the last 30 years, you know, when I was in Indiana, even here, right? All kinds of good things. But good things can get in the way of the most important things. And then it's always interesting to me the things that people get bent out of shape about, even in a church, that maybe will indicate what it is that they find important. I don't know if in 30 years anyone ever came to me and said, hey, I think we ought to make more and better disciples. I don't know if anybody said, hey, that's what I think. Or if anybody came and they were bent out of shape because we weren't making more better disciples. That's interesting to me. Uh, I looked this up, discipleship.org said this. this. This just, I don't know, wrecked me this last week. Fewer than 5% of the churches in the United States have a reproducing, disciple-making culture. Wow. Jesus said, go make disciples. I'll build my church. 
No churches in the study reflected viral-like, organic-like disciple-making movements. In another book that I read this last summer, Faith for Exiles, I recommend it highly, only 10% of 20-somethings in church are what you would call resilient disciples. And two-thirds of those who grew up in church end up dropping out altogether. Like if there's anything to get bent out of shape about, like that, that would be it. That maybe would not only get us bent out of shape, but make us busy. Feels like maybe we're busy and bent out of shape about the wrong thing sometimes. If 5% of churches in the United States have a reproducing, disciple-making culture, and Jesus said, that's the one thing I want you to do. It reminds me, I took my family, my kids were all little, to Florida, and uh, we didn't make much money back then at all. And so um, for us, a trip to Dunkin' Donuts was going to be a big treat, and I couldn't wait. I don't know, my kids had experienced that, I'm not sure, but I, I couldn't wait. We're going to go get some donuts at Dunkin' Donuts. I drove them there. They're excited. I said, listen, I'm going to get you two today, right? It's a big day, two donuts. Dunkin' Donuts, I was talking these donuts up. These kind are great. This kind's awesome. You get the glaze, the cream, the raspberry fill, all donuts, right? Couldn't wait. Found the Dunkin' Donuts, pulled in. My kids are jacked up to get donuts. I remember we walked in. The lady meets me at the counter, and my kids are like fired up. and like, hey, we want to order some donuts here at Dunkin' Donuts. There's no donuts like y'all's donuts at Dunkin' Donuts. The lady looked at me and said, we don't have any donuts today. I said, excuse me? I, I said, you know, maybe don't have a certain kind of donut. No, she said, there are no donuts. We have muffins. Uh, she said, we have some bagels. We ain't got no donuts. I, I said, are you being serious with me? You're, you're dunking donuts. That's what you do is donuts, and you ain't got no donuts. When I read these statistics... That Jesus said, I'll build my church as you make disciples. Disciples is what you're about doing in 5%. That wrecks me. So how in the world do we make Jesus' final command our first priority? How do we do this? Two questions. Two questions for today. If you're taking notes, I'd write the first one down. Have I truly accepted the invitation of Jesus to follow him as his disciple? It starts with an invitation to follow Jesus and that invitation to follow Jesus ultimately leads to a transformation. Now, here's what I know, right? Listen. How you hear, listen close, how you hear the invitation of Jesus depends on how you see the one making the invitation. Let me show you. We're right in Matthew 28. I'm going to just try to stay there the rest of the time, okay? Can we do that? When they saw him, they worshipped him. Some doubt it. I find that interesting. Some of you right now are on the edge. I don't know. But when they saw him, you got to get in the context of the story. They saw him killed on a cross. They saw him buried in a tomb, and now they see him alive. And so they worshiped some doubt that Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. His instruction to make disciples are because he's the one who had all authority in heaven and on earth. That's why some worshipped him. Jesus stands in front of them and he says, I have all authority. Listen, if a guy is killed on a Roman cross, buried, and he now is alive, I am going to listen when he says, I got all authority. But it tells me something about a true disciple of Jesus. That a true disciple of Jesus recognizes and responds. By the way, stop a second. That's what it means to worship. I recognize and respond to all that Jesus is, says, and does. 
So a true disciple of Jesus recognizes and responds to Jesus as the one with all of all authority in heaven and earth. First and foremost, he has all authority. He's the only one who has the authority to forgive my sins, to save and rescue me from my sin, to usher us into the family of God and grant us eternal life. Jesus, listen close, is the only one with the authority to do that in your life. He's the only one that can save you from your sin, forgive you from your sin, usher you into the family of God, and grant you eternal life. It's fascinating. There's a story in Matthew 9. They bring this paralyzed guy to Jesus. And I, I think his buddies who bring him are thinking, man, if we get to Jesus, maybe he'll be able to walk again. Jesus shocks the daylights out of him because he looks at the paralyzed man, doesn't say get up and walk immediately. What he says is this. He says, your sins are forgiven. Well, the religious leaders get mad. They said, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Well, who are you to say that? So Jesus said, just so you'll know that I am who I say I am, he says that I get up and walk. And then he says this. I want you to write this passage down. But I want you to know the reason I told him to get up and walk, that I am who I say I am, that the Son of Man, Jesus, has the what? The what? Say it out loud. The, right, authority on earth to forgive sins. He's the only one. What gives him that authority? Well, John 10, I'm the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the, what? Authority voluntarily to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. Victory over death, sin, and Satan. The command I received from my father. This command I received from my father. You see, Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life and he came and voluntarily, that, that's what gave him the authority, died in the place of all of us who haven't. And when he rose again, had the authority because of that, he had victory over sin, death, and Satan. And he did that for you and he did that for me. He's the only one who has that authority. Have you ever said yes to Jesus as the one who can save you from your sins? Have you ever said yes to Jesus as the only one who can usher you into the family of God, grant you eternal life? He's the only one. But, but it's not just that. That a true disciple recognizes and responds, that's worship, to Jesus as the one who has the authority to lead the rest of my life. Quite frankly, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus, when he says follow me, isn't like follow me on Facebook, right? Some of you have that. I'm not a but some of you, or follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's not even, in our culture, like a lot of people hear that, that to be a follower or disciple means student. I think that breaks down because we have students, they sit in classroom and they do classwork. That's what a student is. I think the better word in our culture, Aiden introduced this a couple weeks ago, is apprentice. That literally an apprentice in that culture would have attached their life to Jesus. They would have attached their life to the rabbi. And an apprentice, the whole goal is I want to be with my rabbi all day, every day, eat with them. I want to sleep at the foot of their bed, listen to them teach, learn from them, attached to his teachings, his passion, his purpose. I shared this a few months ago, actually maybe a year or so ago, that a Hebrew blessing 
would have gone like this. May you be covered by the dust of your rabbi. To follow Jesus is to follow him as the teacher, as the Lord, as the rabbi of our life, so to speak. So am I truly a disciple of Christ? I gotta ask myself, am I attaching my life to Jesus in a way that I'm listening to him? In their book, Faith for Exiles, the author states that we, as a culture, and I think he's right, are turning to our devices to make sense of life and allowing our technology to outpace our theology. And then he says this, we in essence have become screen disciples. Our screens disciple us. I think he's right. Like he gives a whole bunch of statistics in the book. Uh, I'll give you a story. I met with a young uh, adult in the last several years who came to talk to me about some sexual decisions they were making. And I asked them a question. By the way, I would learn to ask lots of questions if I were you. That's a different sermon, different place. We'll talk about that a little bit later, actually. But I said, help me understand, because uh, this person would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Help me understand what led you to make those decisions. This is what they said to me. I searched it on Google, and Google said it was okay. <laughs> like, like that is being discipled by a screen. You see, a, rab, a, a disciple, a follower, is going to attach their life to the rabbi. I'm going to listen to what they say. And, 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 and I want to hear what they really said. It's one thing, though, to hear them. It's a different thing to listen to them. A disciple, a follower, is going to listen to the teachings of Jesus. Ready? To the teachings of Jesus, even the ones I may not like. About sexuality. About finances. About forgiveness. You see, I got to ask, am I attached my life to Jesus? But apprentice would do what their teacher did. The goal was to share the same passions, to have the same priorities, to participate in all the same purposes, to adopt the pattern of your rabbi. Uh, write this down. No, no screen for it. First John 2 says this. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did. That's interesting, right? When Jesus called the first disciples, he taught them, but then he took them with him. It was life on life, and he showed them. They watched as he dealt with criticism. They watched as he invited children to come to him. <clears throat> they watched as he confronted sin while loving sinful people. And they watched him speak to the forgotten, love the, the, the unlovely. They, they watched him invest in the ignored. They watched him seek the lost. They watched him pronounce forgiveness on the ones who crucified him. You see, an apprentice would not only attach their life and listen to the teachings, but they would watch and they would want to join in because ultimately, here's what a, a follower, ultimately they, they would attach their life in such a way that they would become more and more like their teacher. The goal is to become like your rabbi. Jesus said it this way, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. See, my attitude begins to look more like Jesus when I attach my life to him and follow him. The way I relate to others looks more like Jesus. The way I see life and the world, the way I respond to injustice, the way I respond to unfair things, the way I view things, the priorities I have in my life begin to look more like Jesus and my ambition 
becomes like Jesus. And Jesus' ambition was to what? Seek and save the lost. It was a gospel movement that would change the world. The way he did it was to choose men and women who would attach their lives to him and then made them fishers of men. That would be charged with the same mission to make disciples. The place I need to begin is simply this. Have I truly accepted the invitation of Jesus to follow him as his disciple? Have you? Not am I going to church. Not am I participating in the programs of the church. Some of you are doing that, doing doing that regularly, consistently. You're in four different Bible studies. That's not the question. Not am I part of the Christian subculture. But have I attached my life to Jesus as my leader? He's the only one who has authority in my life to forgive me of my sins, usher me into the family of God, grant me eternal life, and lead me in my life as the Lord of my life. There's a second question then. And the second question says, am I inviting anyone else to follow Jesus as I follow Jesus? Let's get our bearings here. Remember, it starts with an invitation. Follow me. Leads to a transformation. If you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Can we just stop here a second? If I'm not fishing for men, yep, then I'm probably not following Jesus. So it begins with an invitation, leads to a transformation that explodes into multiplication. Fishing for men explodes into this, make disciples of all nations. Jesus said, that's how I'm going to build my church. Jesus' vision and his command is that every disciple of Jesus Christ make disciples. I was reading in a book that was written um, by a guy whose name is J.D. Greer. Gaining by losing is the name. He's talking about Abraham Lincoln. And he said that Abraham Lincoln had a general who was a phenomenon. At the age of 15, General George McClellan was a phenomenon, was even considered a young Napoleon. Uh, he was the youngest person to be accepted into West Point, graduated second in his class, only because he couldn't draw maps well. Served in the American-Mexican War and then in the Crimean War, both with distinction. Uh, one of McClellan's greatest gifts, however, was his ability to recruit and organize. When Lincoln appointed him to head up the new army, he did it, and he expanded the ranks of the army from 50,000 men to 168,000, bringing a level of organization, precision to the troops that stunned McClellan's superiors. Furthermore, his troops loved him. He was a lovable guy, a lovable leader. Even amongst the grueling conditions of the Civil War, he kept their morale high, inspiring them to give more and do more because the cause was worth it. And that's all the more amazing considering they had been decimated at the bull run just prior to his commission. Under McClellan, they started to believe again. No one was surprised when, in 1861, President Lincoln made him his general-in-chief. McClellan had the resume. He had the experience. Now he had the powerhouse army behind him, outnumbering his enemy by more than two to one. There's just one problem. He would not fight. He was a general that would not fight. For weeks, General McClellan readied his position, organized, strategized, while Lee's army lay dangerously exposed just miles away. Lincoln urged him to put his numerical and tactical advantage to use, but he would not pull the trigger. So after a year of inactivity, Lincoln removed the greatest military mind of his time and replaced him with a man that some said was half of his tactical talent. But a man 
who it was said would pick a fight with a beehive buck naked, and that's Ulysses S. Grant. You see, the point is this, is that Jesus' vision is disciples make disciples, that a follower who's not fishing for people is a contradiction. A disciple who's not making disciples is an inconsistency. Our success as a church in America, our success as a church here at Grace Church, our eight campuses, our success as a church campus here at the Norton campus will never go beyond the commitment of the individual members of that church to make disciples. And if you're here watching this and you're from another church, I would say the same is true for yours. And we have distractions, right? Like we can organize our churches, get a lot of people coming to our churches, but the idea is this, that if there's not a culture of discipleship, we're just like General McClellan, right? We're disciples who won't disciple or like generals who won't fight. We have all kinds of distractions and excuses, and sometimes the thing that we distracts us is we're busy doing good things to keep us from important things. So how does it look? Can we end here? How does it look? I'm going to give you four words that I want you to write down. How does it look if we're going to make disciples? If we're going to actually follow Jesus into this. And let's just go, let's just, just for the sake of the day, we'll talk about this in the future. Let's say, for the sake of the day, just stay in Matthew 28. Here's what he says. He says, all authority, we talked about that. And then he says, therefore go and make disciples. Therefore go. The first thing he says is, therefore, go. Now, sometimes we read that like there's, there's one command in this whole section, and it's make disciples. The one command that Jesus gives is make disciples. So what's he saying when he says, therefore, go? What's well, a participle? Literally, you can read this, as you're going. Uh, I would write this word down, instinct. Here's, here's what I think. We've got to develop the instinct of Jesus as you are going. Therefore, go. Make disciples as you are going. How do we do that? Well, this is all about the who. Like, I have people say, I don't know who. Can you match me up with somebody? And I'm happy to do that occasionally. But I think we've made it too hard. I think the idea of developing an instinct is something that starts mechanical, and then it turns intuitive. So an instinct becomes an intuition, an intuitive. But it, but it might start mechanical. Can I just show you something really quick. Will you just stay with me on this? I used to coach football, and uh, some of you are football coaches watching this, and, and you may listen to what I'm saying and say, hey, that kind of coaching's outdated. I don't know. But when I coached, I had a couple years where I coached the linemen. These are linemen. We call them the big uglies. And so if you're an old lineman, the big uglies, right? And when we coached linemen, uh, we always taught them when they come to the line to face the opponent that, that they had a rule that they had to, who do they block was their question. Like, who do I block? And so what we told him is, so let's say we're talking to this lineman, you always look who's on your inside gap. That's your first rule. Who is inside gap? Because they can get to the backfield and the quarterback quicker. So his job, look here first. If there's nobody here, then look here. Man over. Inside gap, man over. Say that with me. Inside gap, man over. You guys are good linemen, I can tell, right? So you look here. Is there anybody straight up? That's my next. If there's nobody here, here, then I'm looking for a near linebacker. Somebody that's maybe a near linebacker, somebody back here. So inside gap, man over, near linebacker. And so you teach these young men to do this. And if they were new to this, it looked very mechanical. They'd come to the line, and you could almost see them going, boom, 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 right? And it, But by the second or third game, it went from mechanical to intuitive, instinctive. They started just, without even thinking about it, they'd come up and they just did it like the, they just, 
and they knew who to block. The same thing, can we leave that there for a second? The same thing true for discipleship. What if it became intuitive, instinctive for us to look in our inside gap? Can we just use these terminologies? Our inside gap. Maybe that's our family and friends that we have an inside relationship with. We have an inside track. If you're a parent watching this, your kids are on your inside gap when it comes to disciple making. You are the primary discipler in their life. Maybe for some of you, it's your sibling. You have a relationship, your brother, your sister, whatever it might be. Uh, maybe for some of you, it's just a really close friend that you guys are always hanging out together. They're on your inside gap. And the, the idea here is that developing an intentionality with those relationships. Uh, what about man over? Those are the people in my natural path of life. So that's the people I work with, my neighbors, the people I come into contact. Uh, for you high school students, maybe it's the team. Maybe college students, you play on a team. Uh, maybe it's your classmates. And, and then I look inside gap. Who are those people? Who are the people in my natural pathway of life? That's man over. And then near linebacker, who are those intentional relationships? Uh, I would say this. Who are the intentional relationships with somebody from another generation? Some of you are older generation. Who is somebody from a younger generation that I can build a relationship with, begin inviting them into this relationship with Jesus or walking with them as I follow Jesus and teach them and pray with them. Uh, for some of you, it's some people in the church in your community. The idea here is to develop intentionality that becomes instinct. How? Well, here's how it works. To begin intentionally, personally praying for those people to be intentional about it, to pray for your kids, to pray the people that don't know Jesus in your life and the people who do, who maybe you can invite to follow Jesus with you. To begin looking to, you want to develop an instinct, look to be good at starting conversations. Some of you are like, I'm not very good at it. Then learn. And the way you learn is ask lots of questions. And then listen. Ask good questions. Jesus asked more questions than he answered. Ask lots of questions. And then listen, be willing to go beneath the how's the weather conversation. And here's what happens. Mechanically inviting people into this becomes an instinct, which leads to this. He says, therefore, as you're going, make disciples, baptizing them. What's that about? It's all about the word identify. Invite them to identify their life in Jesus too, just like you. So if you're a follower of Christ, your life has been identified in Jesus. You identify with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He's the one who has the authority to save you and lead you. And baptism is just a public way that I say, I identify my life with Jesus. His death, his burial, his resurrection. By the way, February 12th, Super Bowl Sunday, we're having baptisms here. And if you are a disciple of Christ and you've never been baptized, we would love to have the opportunity to walk with you into that. Email, call, come. Somehow, let us know that. I'm identifying with Jesus as the only one who has the authority and power to save me from my sin and lead me. And here's what happens. When I identify my life in Jesus as my Savior and Lord, I have a new identity. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm not who other people say I am. I'm not even who I say I am. I am who he says I am, and when I know who I am, what? I know what to do. I'm a trophy of his grace. I'm a, I'm a masterpiece in his hands. 
I'm a child of the king. I'm an ambassador of the Almighty. I'm not a pastor who happens to be a follower of Christ. I am a follower of Christ who just happens to be a pastor. What is your occupation? You a teacher? You aren't a teacher who happens to be a Christian. If you're a disciple of Christ, you're a disciple of Jesus who happens to be a teacher. And all of a sudden, my identity, I want to lead them to identify their life in Jesus too, like me. Followers of Jesus transformed making disciples, which leads to this. He says, baptizing them, I want you to make disciples, teaching them. Here, here's the word I'd put, teach them, as you both are going. What Jesus is teaching you. Discipleship is teaching others to read the Bible, to listen to Jesus, to pray, to talk to Jesus, the way you're praying, the way you're reading, the way you're listening, telling people about Jesus, telling them what you're learning from Jesus, showing them how you're serving Jesus. Now, this is simple. How did Jesus teach his disciples? He said, teach them as I taught you. Show and tell. You teach others to follow Jesus as you follow Jesus, as you both are going. Listen, all show and no tell is like a newscast on mute, the author of Gaining by Losing says, right? Like I have some people say, my life does all the work. Well, your life needs to do the work, but the gospel is good news. And so if I never use words, it's like a newscast on mute. But all tell and no show is inconsistent. Your life will be the loudest sermon they ever hear. I have people say this, well, I won't, what if they have questions I don't know the answer to? I don't know that I've ever discipled somebody that didn't ask me questions I didn't know the answer to. Like, that's okay. You see, it's not about I'm the, I'm the professor, they're the student, I've got to have all the answers to their questions. It's about, I'm following Jesus. I'm on a journey. would love for you to go too. And when they say, what about? And I'm like, I don't know. I've never thought about that before. Come on, let's keep going. Jesus is okay with my questions. I'm okay with your questions. And I'll even say to somebody I'm discipling, if you're okay with me not having answers to all your questions. It's just inviting them to follow Jesus, teaching them around the word of God together. Maybe it's finding a time to say, can we read? One hour a week, can we read? Say, here's what we see Jesus telling us. Here's what God is saying in his word. Let's pray together. Let's ask each other some important questions that go beyond how's the weather, right? And then he says, I am with you always. I'd write down the word intimacy that a real and abiding relationship with Jesus, the Jesus who's going with you, is the goal. Like he says, I'm with you. It's practicing and living in light of the always present Jesus. One author put it this way, if we cannot multiply disciples, we'll never multiply leaders. The way to see a true church multiplication movement is to multiply healthy disciples, then leaders, then churches, and finally movements in that order. Jesus said, I'll build the church. You make disciples. Yeah, I wonder what it may look like 20 years from today if parents looked on their inside gap and said, we want to pray for and be intentional about making disciples of the children God's entrusted to us. I wonder what would happen if friends began praying for friends who don't know Jesus in intentional ways that they began to invite them into a relationship with Jesus.
began to look at our neighbors differently. I wonder what would happen if we began to look at our coworkers through the lens of Jesus' final command, and that became our first priority. I wonder, older generation, what would happen when you see the younger people if you began to look at them through the lens of Jesus' final command. I wonder what our church would look like in 20 years. We're at the end of decade one of a 30-year vision. And I wonder what these next 20 years would look like here at the Norton campus if we became a church culture that made his last command our first priority. I wonder not simply what that would mean for us collectively, I wonder what that would mean for you. I wonder what that would mean for me. So God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts, individually and then corporately, a passion and a culture to make disciples, to accept the invitation of Jesus that leads to transformation of Jesus, that leads to the mission of Jesus to make disciples. I pray this in Jesus' name.